Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the Book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we continue our study of Article 8 from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, looking at the affirmative statements where we get that wonderful phrase, we believe, teach, and confess, with regard to the teaching on the person of Christ. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Peter Ill. You've heard him here before. He used to be a part of that cohort of Christ Confessing Concordians that we had back when we could have, you know, people together. But Pastor Ill, you are the pastor, senior pastor, I guess, of Trinity in Milstadt, Illinois. It's a great pleasure to have you back with us today. It's wonderful to get to be back with you too. Yes, it's almost like the good old days all over again. But we have a lot to confess today, so we're going to dispense with the chit-chat. I know you and I can certainly do a lot of that. Sometimes I think we had some listeners just for that purpose in the old days. Another day we'll chit-chat, but today we get to talk about Jesus. I am so excited. And we've got a lot to do in that regard. So let's go ahead and jump in with these affirmative statements. And as a reminder, we read from Concordia the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. This is the epitome of the formula of Concord, with references as necessary to the Solid Declaration, the much more lengthy treatment of this. But here in the epitome, we are picking up with paragraph four, the affirmative statements. And we're going to go ahead and take paragraphs four, five, and six together here. So this is pure teaching of the Christian church about the person of Christ. To explain this controversy and settle it according to the guidance analogy of our Christian faith, our doctrine, faith, and confession is as follows. The divine and human natures in Christ are personally united. So there are not two Christs, one the Son of God and the other the Son of Man, but one and the same person is the Son of God and Son of Man citing Luke 1, verse 35, and Romans 9, verse 5. And point two, affirmative statement two, we believe, teach, and confess that the divine and human natures are not mingled into one substance, nor is one changed into the other. It keeps its own essential properties, which can never become the properties of the other nature. All right, so as was laid out last week with Dr. Kirk Clayton in the status of the controversy, this is one of the great mysteries of the Christian church, right behind the Trinity, probably, how you have two natures in Christ, yet they're not pulled apart. And these mysteries of our faith can really be quite confusing, but they need not be because they just confess what Scripture says. So go ahead and break this down for us. What are we saying here about our faith in Christ in these two natures? 
So what we're saying is there is one Christ, one Jesus, but even our use of the personal name Jesus can become a little bit challenging as we go through this particular reading, because Christ existed, has always existed, just like God the Father. He doesn't have a beginning. But we do talk about Jesus having, especially according to his human nature, a beginning when he was conceived and when he was born. We talk about that, but there is still just one Christ. And he's not part God and part man, where you would add 50% God to 50% man and have 100% Jesus. This is where our human common sense doesn't make sense. You use the word mystery really well. We end up talking about Jesus as completely and totally divine and completely and totally human at the same time. He is completely two different things that for anyone else would be mutually exclusive, but he is God in the flesh. He doesn't play by our human rules. He doesn't play by our common sense. And so we say that in Christ, there are two natures, the human and the divine, all the way, without limit, without exception, and they're not mingled together. We see those elements of his humanity and of his divinity, but we don't focus on those elements uh, as being distinct or that he has to turn off his humanity or his divinity at any point. He is all the way both, all the time from his conception through eternity as it continues to go forward. And that's going to continue to be fleshed out as we continue to progress through these affirmative statements, right? That's the progression. We're going to see this build upon one another. We've talked about this many times in just about every work that we've done going through the Book of Concord is that this is a work of logic and reason. And so they're going to build upon one another. And so let's go. You want to say something? I do. Fleshed out. I like the way you did that. That was good. Yeah, you're welcome. All right. So let's go ahead and build upon this then, picking up with affirmative statements three and four. And these are paragraphs seven and eight. The properties of the divine nature are these, to be almighty, eternal, infinite, and to be everywhere present according to the property of its nature and its natural essence of itself, to know everything and so on. These never become properties of the human nature. The properties of the human nature are to be a bodily creature, to be flesh and blood, to be finite and physically limited, to suffer, to die, to ascend and descend, to move from one place to another, to suffer hunger, thirst, cold, heat, and the like. These never become properties of the divine nature. All right, so now we're talking about the man Jesus, right? So when we see Jesus as he is conceived in the Virgin Mary, as he's born, we see him doing divine things. We see him doing human things, but never does the divine nature become the human nature. It always remains the divine nature, and never does the human nature become the divine nature. They stay as their own nature. There are times when the human nature is overcome by the divine nature, and there are times when the divine nature is not fully utilized. And we see human things, and we see Jesus' human nature, not because he's not divine, but because he doesn't use his divinity in a way that brings about his full glory. We see that in his suffering and death especially. We're going to come back to this idea of in his suffering and death. But what are some other instances where maybe we see this at work in Jesus, these two natures and yet not mingled together? 
I think that we can talk about when Jesus appears to his disciples in the upper room in John 20 on Easter night. He comes to his disciples and he does something that only the divine nature can do. He appears in the middle of a locked room, but he invites them to see his hands, even the scars of the nails and of the spear. That is something according to the human nature. He doesn't stop having scars. He doesn't stop having a body. He invites his disciples to see his nail-marked hands, his spear-marked side, and then he breathes on them. That breathing, those scars, are according to the human nature. His resurrection, though, is according to both natures. And the fact that he says to them, go, whoever sins you forgive, it's as if I forgave them. That is according to his divine nature. And so as he is speaking with them, he is one Christ, one Jesus in both natures. And we can see he does some things according to his human nature, some things according to his divine nature. But there's not two Christs. There's simply two natures in one person. And why is that important? Why is that important for our confession that we're making this point here? If Jesus were only human, then his death and even his resurrection wouldn't accomplish anything. But the self-sacrifice of God, that does something. God becomes what he is to redeem. Uh, The Athanasian Creed lays this out really, really well, that he took on flesh in order to suffer and to die as a human person, and he became what he is to save. So he is both human and divine at the same time. He doesn't just say, I'm God from a distance, and I'm going to say that everything's okay, there's no big deal here. He becomes a human person suffering, dying, rising, in order to bring life, forgiveness, and salvation to all humankind, to all creation. Which is what we're really concerned with, right, is how do we have a right relationship with God again and have assurance of salvation? And only God can do that. And he works this out in this wonderful way by Christ coming and dwelling and taking on human flesh among us and yet being fully God so that he can suffer it perfectly. And a little bit later on, we'll actually make a point of saying God died. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and he died. And I know that sounds really strange, and and I know there have been times when I've been talking with Christians, and they say, no, you can't say that God died, because when they hear that, they think, he just said that God the Father died. No, please don't misunderstand that. God the Father did not die. God the Holy Spirit did not die. But God the Son, Jesus Christ, according to his human nature, died. If God can't die for his people, then everything that we're talking about is in vain and useless. It doesn't make sense. But to say that God became a man to suffer, to die, to rise again, to bring that life, forgiveness, and salvation is the very heart and center of the gospel message of Christ. He is the one who became just like us in every way except he had no sin. He took on our sin, suffering and dying, so that we have the righteousness of God. And once again, you're reflecting the Athanasian Creed there, too. This has been a part of our faithful confession in the church from the beginning. And as we always reference on this show, this connects us with the Catholic, small-c, universal, faithful, orthodox-believing Christian church on earth as it's been faithfully confessed throughout time. Absolutely. All right, so let's go ahead and push forward and continue to build upon this argument then. This is picking up with paragraph 9, Affirmative Statement 5. The two natures are united personally, 
i.e. in one person. Therefore, we believe, teach, and confess that this union is not the kind of joining together and connection that prevents either nature from having anything in common with the other personally, i.e. because of the personal union. It is not like when two boards are glued together, where neither gives anything to the other or takes anything from the other. But here is described the highest communion that God truly has with the man. From this personal union, the highest and indescribable communion results. There flows everything human that is said and believed about God and everything divine that is said and believed about the man Christ. The ancient teachers of the church explained this union and communion of the natures by the illustration of iron glowing with fire and also by the union of body and soul and man. Continue on with affirmative statement 6, paragraph 10. We believe, teach, and confess that God is man and man is God. This could not be true if the divine and human natures had, in deed and truth, absolutely no communion with each other. For how could the man, the son of Mary, in truth be called or be God, or the Son of God the Most High, if his humanity were not personally united with the Son of God? How could he have no real communion, that is, in deed and truth, with the Most High, but only share God's name? All right, we'll go ahead and pause there. A lot going on, talking about the personal union and united personally, one person, the communion that is going on with these two natures in Christ. So as we get to talk about this, this is one of my very favorite things to get to teach in confirmation class and to talk with with Christians about, because if we say, oh, Jesus is God and man, it's really easy for us to think about that um, kind of in this two boards kind of way. I'll actually, sometimes in confirmation class, carry two boards in with me and I'll write on one divine and write on the other one human and take a little bit of wood glue and stick them together, clamp that overnight, and then I will invite one of the strapping young lads in my confirmation class to investigate these boards. And as, as strapping young lads do, after a few minutes, he'll look at it and he'll try to see if he can get them to pull apart. If I've done my job right, he can't just pull them apart until he happens to set eyes on the crowbar that I just happened to set there in front of him. And then, sure enough, he wants to go ahead and separate those two boards. But Christ, our Savior, is inseparable. It's not that we can divide his humanity from his divinity, and it's not even that he divides his humanity from his divinity. They are linked together, and from the time when he was conceived and born, his humanity and his divinity are inseparable. We see times when he does things according to his divine nature or according to his human nature, but at no point does he ever stop being both human and divine. This becomes a really big deal day after tomorrow, a wonderful church holiday that we get to celebrate, the ascension of our Lord. Jesus goes up into heaven. I've heard really pious and well-meaning Christians say, oh, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he just went as a, a spiritual being. He's not human anymore. That, though, is contrary to Scripture. Our Lord Jesus Christ rules at the right hand of God the Father, body and soul, human and divine. He is still in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, all the way a human person and all the way a divine person. 
I think this is one of the most important things for us to spend a little time and meditate on here because the Ascension, I'm convinced it's one of the greatest feast days that we have in the Christian church here. And it's a shame that it's been set aside and we, we, we don't even have worship services for it all the time. I've restored the practice in my dual parish, although now we have the, the stay-at-home orders affecting things. But if we just ponder for a minute that our confession is that he has ascended and sits at the right hand of God, and certainly according to his divine nature, we recognize him as Lord over heaven and earth. But the fact that our brother, according to the flesh, that God didn't just stay up in heaven and fix our problem. He certainly could have. He's God. He could have made it work. But the way that he chooses to win for us our salvation and a right relationship with him is to send his own son into the human flesh to be our brother in every way. As laid out for us really well in Hebrews, he knew every temptation, every sickness, every sorrow, everything that we know and experience, he has known and yet without sin. And that he, our brother, ascends and sits at the right hand of God in the human flesh and pleads our case for us. That is just a really great comfort. I mean, if we know that someone that we have a personal connection with is next to someone in power and authority, when it's appropriate and we can use that to our benefit, we certainly do. And that's true here in our human life. But the fact that God gives that benefit to us, that Jesus Christ in the flesh, our brother, now sits at his right hand, and that as God reigns throughout all eternity, he does so with Jesus pleading our case. And then reflecting back on your conversations from a couple of weeks ago, we see that our Lord Jesus, our brother, who is all the way human and all the way divine, comes to us from the right hand of God the Father, where he never leaves, and brings us his very own divine and human body and blood. How is it that Jesus can say that he has body and blood? Because he's still human, and he still has his human nature. How is it that he can be present in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, and present here in our hands, on our tongues, on that communion pattern that holds the host of all heaven, our Lord Jesus? And in the chalice that holds his precious blood shed for us, well, it's because he is both human, having body and blood, and because he's divine and can be all places and ever-present in this way that defies words, in a way that defies logic, but in a way that conquers sin, death, and the devil every single time that he comes to you. All right, I pushed back on Dr. Clayton on this last week, Uh-oh. and I'm going to push back again. We say defies logic, but I always like to clarify, I know that you're with me on this. And so we're just clarifying that when we talk about logic, it's connected with the Greek word logos, which we see show up in John chapter one. And the divine logos is God himself who takes on human flesh, John chapter one. It is so wonderfully comforting to know that actual logic, the logos of God, takes on human flesh. And so it doesn't defy logic. It actually is our logic. And it defies all human logic, which is corrupted by sin and corrupted by human limitation after the fall into sin. 
it defies human logic, but Christ our Lord, as you well say, he is our human and divine logic that has overcome sin still and always. Yeah, that's where I've tried to shift my talking from defies logic to defies our human thinking or something of that nature. And ultimately, as you well brought us, and so I want to bring us back to this, the connection that you made, this really all stems from what we're talking about when it's the Lord's Supper. That's how this article begins, right? Paragraph one, we we covered last week, from the controversy about the Holy Supper, a disagreement has arisen between the pure theologians of the Augsburg Confession and the Calvinists. The Calvinists have also confused other theologians about the person of Christ and the two natures of Christ and their properties. See, we have this article that needs clear confession from Scripture, and it flows out of and is connected to the problem that we have with the sacramentarians, the Calvinists, the Reformed, in their confession about the Lord's Supper itself. If you get Christ wrong, you're going to get a whole lot of other things wrong. Can we take just a short detour and talk a little bit about what our Calvinist brothers and sisters in Christ believe about the Lord's Supper? Because this is a point where we say their understanding, ultimately, of the two natures in Christ is mistaken, and it leads to leads to a scary place because they raise the question, how can Christ be at the right hand of God the Father and physically present at the altar in the distribution in his body and blood? And then they end up saying that Jesus is spiritually present in the Lord's Supper, but not physically present. The reason why this is so important to us is we say, our Lord, our brother, Jesus, is physically and divinely present with us in the Lord's Supper and he is both God and man. We aren't trying to separate those boards, and our Calvinist brothers and sisters in Christ are actually just trying to separate those boards of Christ's humanity and divinity in the Lord's Supper. This is where the rubber meets the road and why we care so much. We want to make it abundantly clear Our Lord Jesus, who comes to us in the Lord's Supper, is human and divine, and he is humanly and divinely there at the same time, not according to our human thinking, but according to his divine personage, as he is both human and divine at the same time. Which, again, is really comforting. I I think back to Reverend Dr. Norman Nagel, who used to say, a God who is present everywhere is as useless as a God who is present nowhere. What we need is a God who has promised to be present somewhere. That's kind of my paraphrase of what he used to say. He probably said it a lot more beautifully than I did. But this is true. You know, the problem that I have with the Reformed thinking when it comes to the ascension, that we have Jesus as a spirit up in heaven at the right hand of God, or in the Lord's Supper, that God is there spiritually, Jesus is there spiritually. Okay, but what we have is a God who's everywhere in a spiritual sense, but there's nothing physical. There's nothing tangible and real. And what we have all the way throughout scripture is a God who makes himself physically present with his people. And that always brings comfort. I mean, this is exactly why as the people of God wandered through the wilderness, he would come by a pillar of cloud by day or a pillar of fire by night and he would dwell in the tabernacle in the very midst of his people. They could look to it, they could see it, and it brought them comfort as they're wandering through the wilderness, which is how we live life in the wilderness of this sin-broken world, that we have a God who comes to be physically present with us. And that is so comforting that when I receive Christ's body and blood, that is my God, my brother, Jesus Christ, in the flesh, his true body and blood, come to give me comfort for everything that ails me. 
and that he just continues to be physically present at God's right hand, pleading our case. When Jesus stands, as it says in Hebrews, as he stands as our mediator before God the Father, he is the one who is still human, who, it doesn't say this in Hebrews, but he still has those nail marks. The book of Revelation describes how the lamb looks like he was slain, his wounds in his physical human body don't go away. He has those nail marks, that wound from the spear forever. Into eternity, those marks in his humanity remain. And he is the divine person who can speak with divine authority to his father and who still has those human nail marks. Is he located in heaven with God the Father, interceding on our behalf? You betcha. Is he also just as real and just as present in that broken body, in that shed blood for the forgiveness of sins in the Lord's Supper? Absolutely. How does that work? I can't explain it. I can simply confess what Scripture says. And so this is my confession, our confession, about who Jesus is, God and man. And we're certainly going to continue to confess more of this. I want to pick up on the other side of the break, the idea, as I brought in John chapter 1, that God, the divine logos, the word of God, comes and takes on human flesh and dwells among us. We see this most notably as he is conceived of the Virgin Mary. And that's where our confession goes next. So please join us right after this. Hi, this is Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas, and host of Sharper Iron from KFUO. I'd love to have you join us in our current study of St. Paul's Letter to the Romans. The series is called The Righteousness of God for You. Throughout this marvelous epistle, the apostle takes us back to the fundamentals of Christian doctrine. He sharpens our understanding of basic terms that our pastors introduced to us in confirmation class, terms like sin and grace, law and gospel, justification and sanctification, faith and righteousness, and much more. But this isn't just an academic exercise. Rather, at the center of the doctrine taught in the epistle to the Romans stands Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for sinners. If you studied Romans in the past, don't worry about getting bored. Your faith will be sharpened even more. In his preface to Romans, Dr. Martin Luther put it like this. This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We can never read it or ponder over it too much. For the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Check out the Sharper Iron podcast from KFUO to taste and see from the book of Romans that the Lord is good because his righteousness is for us. Oh! 
That's from Lutheran Service Book Hymn 941. We praise you and acknowledge you, O God. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with Pastor Peter Ill about the person of Christ. And we were talking about the two natures of Christ. And I just love the way that this hymn sets up for us why it was so important that God, the King of glory, would be born of a virgin to take on human flesh, to dwell among us. It's to rescue us. It's to give us salvation, as we so wonderfully confessed. And so let's go ahead and push forward then, picking up here with paragraph 12. And we're going to hear this reflected. We're going to take paragraphs 12, 13, 14, and 15. Again, this is working from the epitome of the formula of Concord, Article 8, the person of Christ. And this is going to be affirmative statements 7, 8, 9, and 10. And we're going to see here reflected the humanity of Christ connected with his divine nature coming together in the incarnation. So we believe, teach, and confess that Mary conceived and bore not merely a man and no more, but God's true son. Therefore, she also is rightly called and truly is the mother of God. We also believe, teach, and confess that it was not a mere man who suffered, died, was buried, descended to hell, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and was raised to God's majesty and almighty power for us. But it was a man whose human nature has such a profound, close, indescribable union and communion with God's Son that it is one person with him. God's Son truly suffered for us. However, he did so according to the attributes of the human nature, which he received into the unity of his divine person and made his own. He did this so that he might be able to suffer and be our high priest for our reconciliation with God. As it is written in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8, they crucified the Lord of glory. And Acts 20, verse 28 says, with God's blood we have been redeemed. We believe, teach, and confess that the Son of Man really is exalted. He is, indeed in truth, exalted according to his human nature to the right hand of God's almighty majesty and power. For he was received into God when he was conceived of the Holy Spirit in the mother's womb, and his human nature was personally united with the Son of the Highest. I just love the incarnation, Christmas, ascension, everything in between, all wrapped up together in Christ. It's just such a beautiful confession of what God and his grace has done for us. And so we're seeing here the two come together in the incarnation, in Jesus, and never pulled apart again. As we get to talk about this, there are some who will say, hey, wait a minute, this big claim to say that that Mary is the mother of God. Why do you want to say so much about Mary? Why do you want to talk about Mary? And sometimes people will even say, it almost sounds like you're turning into a Roman Catholic. That's not the case at all here, though. Instead, what we're saying is what we say about Jesus has an impact on how we talk about his mom. Jesus is indeed completely and totally human, including the fact that he has a mom. Jesus is completely and totally God. When we say that Mary is the mother of God, we're not saying that she is the mother of God the Father. We're not saying that she is the mother of the Holy Spirit. We're not saying that she has always been present or that she is co-redeemer or anything like that. We are simply confessing that the baby that she gave birth to is indeed all the way and completely God. Jesus is not less than God the Father in his divinity. Jesus is not less than the Holy Spirit in his divinity. He has a human nature that neither the Father nor the Holy Spirit has. 
So we talk about Mary as the mother of God, not because we're trying to elevate her status, but because we want to fully and clearly speak about the status of Jesus himself. And so we talk about Jesus having a mom. We talk about Jesus suffering and dying. And in the middle of all of that, we say that he, as God and man, suffered. He died. He rose. He descended into hell. He ascended into heaven. All of these things that he has done because he is at the same time God and man. He does it in his humanity and in his divinity, and that doesn't stop. So this is where we get into, especially here in paragraph 14, we use this phrase, according to. We talk about according to his human nature, he suffered for us. That is to say, if Jesus didn't have a human nature, how would he suffer for us? If he doesn't have a body, if he can't die like a human would die, then how would that work? I don't know. I'm not going to tell God what he can and can't do. But What does happen, and what we do clearly know is here, God in the flesh has a body, has a human nature, and he suffers and he dies as a person. Does the entire person of Jesus die on the cross? Yes. Uh, This is where I've heard some really well-meaning Christians say, when Jesus died on the cross, the human part died, but the divine part didn't die. Dear Christian friends, pretty please don't say that. Because what you have just done, if you talk that way, is you have taken your two boards that were glued together and you ripped them apart and you said that now Jesus is not two natures in one person anymore. He has a human part and a divine part that can be separated. Holy Scripture does not speak this way. Jesus doesn't speak this way about himself. As an entire human divine person, Jesus died. And so we want to be really, really clear. It's not just that the human part of Jesus died and the divine part didn't die. No, Jesus died all the way. Jesus suffered all the way. When we say according to his human flesh, we don't just mean the human part. We mean because he has a human part, all of him died. I think one of the key phrases here is right there in affirmative statement 9, paragraph 14, where it says, God's son truly suffered for us. However, he did so according to the attributes of his human nature. You you highlighted that, and it continues on, which he received into the unity of his divine person and made his own. It's more than that two boards being glued together. And, And this is where, as we often see with the great mystery of the Trinity, all metaphors to try and explain these great mysteries generally fall short and lead us into some sort of heresy. So I'm not sure that there is a good picture for us of these two natures that come together in Christ. We just simply should confess it as it is true because he makes it his own. He brings it into himself. And I like what you're highlighting here for us is that essentially God can't die. Not just essentially, truly God can't die. It's not a part. He's, he exists from beginning to end and beyond from all eternity. God does not die. And so he takes on the human nature and he brings these together so that he can die. And we need that because it is through one man that sin entered into the world. And so through one man, a righteous man, Jesus Christ, so also all may be made righteous. And so he needs that. But then he also needs the divine nature, as we talked about in the first half of the show, that without that divine nature, then Jesus is just a man who dies for you. And there's lots of men who die for you but it affects nothing. So he needs both of these and they are personally brought together in Jesus, inseparable, pulled together in such a beautiful confession. 
Absolutely. And so that's why it is so important for us to say, here we have Jesus, the God-man, who died all the way. His human nature, his divine nature, both died. Because he's one person. You can't separate the two. And I agree with you. I don't think there is a good picture or a good illustration of how the two natures work. Usually when we read the confessions, when we see some kind of an illustration, we say that kind of illustration breaks down here or there. We tend not to have a whole lot of good ways of confessing things according to our own human thinking. We instead can simply say, here's where our human thinking breaks down, and we continue to confess what Scripture says. And as we continue to confess what Scripture says, I want to, before we move on, pick up paragraph 15 here. So we've talked about the importance of his humiliation, his suffering, his death, and the personal union of the God-man Jesus. But it also makes a point of talking about his exaltation. This goes very much back to how we were talking before in the first half of the show about how Christ is at the right hand of the Father, still with his body. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he doesn't go there just as the divine part. And sometimes I've heard Christians talk this way too, that Jesus in heaven, well, that's just the divine part. His body isn't with him anymore. No, Jesus is still completely human with a body and divine at the right hand of God the Father. And his human body has now gone places and done things that no other human body has done. Other people have been raised from the dead. Other people, including Elijah and Enoch, have been assumed into heaven. And we have no reason to believe that their bodies aren't in heaven. But they don't rule at the right hand of God the Father. Only Jesus in his body does that. And so Jesus' body has done things and is doing things that no other human person has done. And Jesus still is a human person. He doesn't give that up. Not now, not ever. When we talk about the ascension, we really talked a lot about this in the first half of the show, so I don't want to spend too much time here. But when we talk about the ascension, again, as Lutherans, one of the most beautiful things that I think that we have on our side is that we just stick to Scripture and what it says. It's what it says, right? And when we see the ascension recorded for us in Scripture, how does it say that Jesus ascended? In the body, obviously. I mean, the disciples who have just seen his body around, his resurrected body, you know, doubting Thomas, touched the nail marks in his hands and touched his side, and, and he asked for some fish and something to eat, right? So he had a real physical body after the resurrection. And that same physical Jesus, right before the disciples, ascends up into heaven. They see it happen. It's not like his spirit separates from the body and just goes on up and it's like, oh, well, there goes the divine Jesus and we we have human Jesus left down here. No, the, the entire thing goes up into heaven. So when we make this confession and we're talking about Jesus, that it's not just a spiritual thing and we make a big deal of this because it's what scripture tells us. Exactly. We're not trying to do backflips in order to say something that scripture doesn't say. We're also not trying to do backflips in order to not say something Scripture says. We're just talking the way the Bible speaks. Jesus ascended into heaven bodily. He's still divine. He's still human. He ascended into heaven. And that is our confession. And we see that he is exalted, and in his return, he will also have a body. He will also still be human. The lamb in the midst of the throne, still human. 
still a body, the one who reigns the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, he'll have a body. And he will bring in the resurrection our bodies. We don't have a divine nature. Not now, not then, not ever. But in the resurrection, we will have bodies then. And when we think about what happens to people when they die, there's a lot of times this idea that eternal life is a spiritual presence with God forever. But that's not what the Bible speaks of. Scripture says that when we die, we are with Christ. And in his return, he will raise our bodies and we will be with him in our bodies in the resurrection forever. Our human nature will be with Jesus in his human and divine nature forever. And then this impacts so many things in our theology and practice. We certainly don't want to rob the comfort of a conscience who's grieving the loss of a loved one, that the spirit is at rest with Christ awaiting the resurrection, right? We don't want to take the comfort of heaven and what is promised to us away from anyone who would be grieving. But the fullness of the promise, as we confess in the creed, we look to the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That's our hope. That's our Christian hope. And we certainly don't want to lose that. And then that will impact our confession of what we do with bodies when there is death, right? That we actually honor that. I think one of the most unfortunate things that ever gets said is, oh, well, that's not grandma. That's just her shell. No, that's grandma. That's her body. And that body's going to be raised on the last day because Jesus is coming back in a body, because Jesus is sitting up there in heaven with a body, and he comes to us in his body and blood and the Lord's Supper. It is always about a physical presence, and God gives us our bodies, and he will raise our bodies. And I think this also then impacts, I feel like I brought this up on the show several weeks in a row now, but I think this pandemic and how our churches have responded to these things really highlights why Lutherans and really should be Roman Catholics as well and the Orthodox as well. But certainly the Lutherans, we are not comfortable with not meeting together. We are not okay with our churches being shut down. Why? Because there's something about the physical nature of gathering together. Wherever two or three, there Christ is present with us. He comes to us with his body and blood in the Lord's Supper. We want to be together. There's a physical connection to the living of our Christian faith. The proclamation of the word we always have. We can certainly read scripture and we should be doing that all the time. And so we certainly make the best of the situation that we're given and try to get through it. But we're not okay with long-term saying, yeah, it's okay for you to be afraid and to stay locked up at your home and to continue to use web streaming or audio services or anything of that nature. No, the whole goal is to get back together be physically gathered with Christ who comes and physically is present among us. This is indeed a time of suffering in our own human natures, but the fullness of the church is most fully seen as she gathers. That's probably a whole different interview for a whole different time, and so I I don't want to go too far, but Christ, he suffers and he is exalted because of his work, and that is what we celebrate, that God took on flesh, suffering and dying, and God took that same flesh up into heaven, into the presence of God the Father, because all who believe in him will be in their bodies with him and with God the Father forever. Wow, what a promise! What an exaltation that day will be. Um, And it really gets me thinking about how the Creed, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, both confess that Jesus had times when we didn't see the fullness of his divinity, 
And when we do see the fullness of his divinity, that is really something for us to celebrate. Those times are especially what we talk about as the state of humiliation and the state of exaltation. And that's where the next couple of paragraphs go. But perhaps before we read it, I want to point out, when we hear about humiliation, we might talk today with each other about times when we were humbled or times when we were humiliated or embarrassed. When we use this statement that Jesus was headed a time of humiliation, it's not that he was embarrassed or a time that he was humiliated by others. But that state of humiliation is when Jesus does not fully show his divine nature. It's not that he couldn't show his divine nature. It's when he didn't show his divine nature. He always could have. Uh, The statements that Satan brought against Jesus when he was tempting him, Jesus could have turned stones into bread. He didn't. Jesus could have come down off of the cross, just like the crowds taunted him, but he didn't. Those are times when we think of Jesus in his state of humiliation, not using the fullness of his divine majesty, but then there are other times when we do see the fullness of his divine majesty in his exaltation. Certainly connected in here, too, is what we talk about what Jesus does perfectly, is that he submits himself, right? That's part of what submission is. It's not a forced, it's not a coercive sort of thing, and sometimes we have those wrong ideas about that word, too, but it's not using it for the sake of something greater, And that's certainly what Jesus does for us. But let's go ahead and get into these paragraphs. We'll go ahead and finish out the affirmative statements here. Paragraph 16, affirmative statement 11. Christ always had this majesty according to the personal union, yet he abstained from using it in the state of his humiliation. And because of this, he truly increased in all wisdom and favor with God and men. Therefore, he did not always use this majesty, but only when it pleased him. Then after his resurrection, he entirely laid aside the form of a servant but not the human nature, and was established in the full use, manifestation, and declaration of the divine majesty. In this way, he entered into his glory, citing Philippians 2, 6-11. So now, not just as God, but also as man, he knows all things and can do all things. He is present with all creatures and has under his feet and his hands everything that is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, as he himself testifies in Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See also John 13, verse 3. And St. Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 10, He ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Because he is present, he can exercise his power everywhere. To him, everything is possible and everything is known. Continuing on paragraph 17. Christ may give his true body and blood in the Holy Supper as one who is present, and it is very easy for him to do so does not do this according to the mode or the ability of the human nature, but according to the mode and ability of God's right hand. Dr. Luther says this in accordance with our Christian faith as we teach it to children. This presence of Christ in the Holy Supper is not physical or earthly, nor capernetic, yet it is true and substantial as the words of his testament read, this is, is, is my body, and so on. Our doctrine, faith, and confession about the person of Christ is not divided, as it was by Nestorius. He denied the true communion of the properties of both natures in Christ. So he divided the person, as Luther has explained in his book Concerning Councils. The natures, together with their properties, are not mixed with each other into one essence, as Eutyches erred. The human nature is the person of Christ, is not denied or annihilated, nor is either nature changed into the other. 
Christ is and remains to all eternity God and man in one undivided person. Next to the Holy Trinity, this is the highest mystery upon which our only consolation, life, and salvation depends, as the Apostle testifies in 1 Timothy 3.16. All right, so with just a few minutes left here, thus far our epitome, but go ahead and flesh this out for us and wrap it up for us as well. So when we confess the second article of the Apostles' Creed about who Jesus is, we talk about how he indeed took on flesh, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, how he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Could Jesus have not done any of those things because he is all the way God? Yep. But he allowed himself to be conceived, to be born, to suffer, to die, to be buried. He didn't fully reveal his divinity in those times, but then... In his resurrection, he did fully reveal his divinity. There was no more holding back. Jesus showed himself to be the one who rose from the dead, who had conquered Satan, who even in his descent into hell went and threw himself a victory parade, informing the devil and all those who were with him that he indeed had conquered. And we see that Jesus is fully exalted. And so, when we receive the Lord's Supper, we receive the divine and human body and blood of Christ, not separated, not all commingled together. As it talks about at the very end of the reading that you did for us, it talks about how Nestorius wanted to separate Jesus' human nature and his divine nature and not keep them fully united. Uh, It's because of Nestorius that they talk about the two boards that were glued together. But then... Another early church figure named Eutychus made the opposite mistake. He said that that the two natures were so commingled that you couldn't really tell them apart. And we say, no, we can definitely see things according to Jesus' human nature, and we see things that Jesus does according to his divine nature. We recognize them, we can distinguish them, but we can't pull them apart. And so we're walking this middle line between Jesus can stop being human, or Jesus can stop being divine. No, we don't do that. We also don't say, oh, it's all just kind of mushed together, and we can't recognize the difference between Jesus' humanity and his divinity. Instead, we see the fullness of Jesus, who is God and man. Jesus, who doesn't always fully reveal all of the characteristics of his divinity for our good and for our benefit, for our life and forgiveness and salvation, Jesus protects and defends us as our Savior, and he keeps us in this true faith now and always. Wow, that was really quite excellent how you brought all of that together. I'm not surprised at all. It's been a great pleasure to have you back with us, my co-confessor, Pastor Peter Ill, who is the pastor at Trinity in Milstadt. Thank you for joining us for Concord Matters again today and confessing for us the clear biblical teaching on the person of Christ. Thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.